Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. On this week's show, a look at Tuesday's election. Voters across the country went to the polls this week, and many races in Arizona remain too close to call. In part because hundreds of thousands of ballots remain uncounted as of our recording time, which is late Thursday. Joining me to break down what we know so far are Republican strategist Jaime Malera of Malera Alvarez and Democratic strategist Chad Campbell of Lumen Strategies Arizona. I started our conversation by asking them if any of the results surprised them. Maletta responded first. If you're talking about the federal races first, I, I think there was a, a couple of interesting nuggets. Uh, Tom O'Halloran losing so quickly, I thought that one would be as an incumbent, as somebody that had uh, a lot of the the National Democratic uh, Congressional Committee support, I thought he'd be at least in the runoff, like we're seeing right now with uh, a couple of the other races. Um, I think uh, Greg Stanton in, in Congressional District 4 uh, did very well. I think a lot of folks thought that would be a lot tighter. I, I know some Republican consultants were thinking if there was a one or two congressional seats, aside from Juan Siscomani's, that that would be the one they might be able to get. Um, but I think the the Mark Kelly, Blake Masters race is coming down to what most people thought, that it was going to tighten. And it's, uh, like we said, everybody's looking at each batch and seeing how it's playing out. Chad, any surprises for you on election night or these these days that have followed? Uh, <laughs> well, I would agree with Jaime on the O'Halloran race. Uh, you know, I think on the Democratic side, we all knew that was going to be a, a very tough battle. The new district just wasn't favorable to a Democrat in the first place. And given the national mood, we knew it was going to be tough. Uh, but I did think it would be closer. And I, I know that Congressman O'Halloran ran a, a very good campaign. He's a very hard campaigner. You know, has a long history in that area. So I was surprised by that race as well. Uh, you know, it, it, that kind of caught me off guard. Uh, otherwise, you know, I, I think that most of these races are playing out like a lot of us expected, especially the statewide races. You know, I know a lot of people came in to Tuesday saying that Harry Lake had somehow captured the momentum and the race was over. And, and I was just laughing at that because there, there was no data that showed that. Uh, all of the polling showed it being neck and neck, and that was true for all of these races from the Senate race on down. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's playing out the way it should have been playing, or it was expected to be playing out. The only other surprise I have, though, I will say, is, is the Tom Horn race uh, at the superintendent of public instruction level. Uh, you know, Tom Horn, as, as I think most of us know, has a, 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 an interesting history, I guess is the best way to put it. And I'm, I'm surprised that he is on the, on the precipice of possibly getting uh, reelected again. Uh, and I think that shows you probably a lot of new voters in the state that probably don't know the history of Mr. Horn is my prediction there. But uh, that one surprised me. Uh, and, and it's not over yet, obviously, but it, it is surprising he's in first place on that one. Jaime, not only are you representing the Republicans in this discussion, but you were a superintendent of public instruction for Arizona at one point. Any thoughts on that race in particular with a former incumbent, I guess that's the best way to uh, think of Mr. Horn, uh, versus a, the current incumbent uh, Democrat, Kathy Hoffman. Well, here's what the, the problem is for a lot of the races that didn't have a lot of the uh, media attention on them. Um, most of the pollsters that were looking at this on, on the Democrat and Republican side, we're, we're looking at this as an eight point Republican advantage, just, just going into the race. 
meaning that historically um, that Republicans with the enthusiasm rate combined with uh, just the amount of higher numbers of Republicans that would be voting, that was the advantage that they had. So when folks were voting, I, I know all of us, you know, we follow politics, we eat and sleep, drink politics, but a lot of folks don't know who these folks are. They don't know who Kathy Hoffman is. They don't know who Tom Warren is. And so a lot of the down ticket races, they'll look at the R and the D and they'll go with that choice. And in a race like that, where even though us in the bubble will know who they are, a lot of folks don't. And so that certainly advantages people like Tom Horn. It advantages the Republicans that are running for corporation commission. It advantages what I would say all the down ballot tickets, including the attorney general's race, where I think that one was a little bit more high profile, but I think Hamadeth was helped because of that particular fact. Let's stay up near the top of the ticket and we'll come back to the U.S. Senate race in a minute, but let's talk about the governor's race. No matter how it comes out, and as one of you said, this is neck and neck, and those of us who spend a lot of time watching these races aren't surprised by that, but there's no mandate here. So going forward, whoever at the end of, we won't even say the day, maybe the week, probably next week comes out with the win on this, how do they move forward, be it Carrie Lake or Katie Hobbs, without that big mandate? It wasn't like Florida that was a 20-point win for Ron DeSantis. I'll take it off. I'll say that if Katie Hobbs were to win, um, I think that she certainly would not be coming in with a mandate, particularly when she's going to be dealing with, which it's likely, it seems like, a Republican-dominated legislature. So she's going to have to come in and pick and choose which battles she's going to want to fight against the Republican-controlled legislature. I think if uh, Carrie Lake wins by just one vote, she's going to come in and say, I have the mandate to do whatever I want. <laughs> and she's going to be very aggressive on that. I, I would I would put a lot of money on that. And particularly when you have a fairly solid Republican legislature, solid meaning not so much in numbers, but you don't have any what I would call the more centrist Republicans left that might challenge Republican leadership. And that's where Lake is going to be able to capitalize on that. Chad, what are your thoughts? You know, I think to kind of build off a of Jaime's point, you know, Carrie Lake, regardless if she wins by one vote or she won by 20,000 votes or, or even if she'd won by a million votes, uh, she thinks she's going to have a mandate regardless of the vote count if she does win this race. You know, I think that that's going to come back to, to haunt her and, and the GOP over the next year or two, if that is the case. Uh, you know, I, I was saying this yesterday and I'll keep saying it. If I'm the Republicans and I'm looking at what's going on right now, I am not looking forward to 2024, quite frankly. Uh, to Jaime's earlier point, this should have been a year where Republicans dominated the elections in Arizona. We are still a Republican-leaning state, and you have a national mood that wasn't great for Democrats, a president that, that's underwater in popularity, and, and a bad economic situ situation. That should add up to running up the score if you're the GOP in a state like Arizona. And they're hanging on by their teeth right now to win some of these races. If Carrie Lake comes in and continues with this MAGA agenda and this MAGA mindset, I think that 2024 is going to be a very bad year for the Republicans. And on the flip side, I think I, I think Katie Hobbs understands she doesn't have a mandate. You know, Katie is a former legislator. She's been in in the governing sector for for over a decade now and understands how to govern. And I think she'll understand that she's going to have to try to work with the Republicans to the degree she they, they're willing to work with her. Right. 
when it came to that campaign, as it was coming down to election day, I talked to some of those centrist Republicans who said, you know, I, I don't like Carrie Lake, I don't like that side of the party, but I just need Katie Hobbs to do something, give me one thing. And they were saying that they didn't felt like Hobbs gave them the one thing and they, they weren't sure what they were going to do with their ballots. You all are both kind of on the inside, if you will, especially as former lawmakers, but as consultants. Were you hearing anything similar and what do you think about that idea? Chad, we'll let you go first on it. Yeah, I heard that from from some folks too uh, on the you know the Republican side or maybe the the right leaning independent side of things. Yeah, you know I can't speak for them. I, I'm not sure exactly what 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 they were looking for though. You know, Katie has a track record of governance. I, I mean, she I think she's done a phenomenal job as Secretary of State, and she has a track record of being a leader in in the Arizona Legislature. I mean, people know what she stands for, and she talked about that. And quite frankly. Uh, Carrie Lake was really more just bombastic and kind of uh, soundbite driven, right? I mean, it was, again, it was more of a Trump style campaign. So, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what they were looking for. I, you know, I know a lot of people talked about the debate or lack thereof. I, I still stand by the fact that I think that I think Katie Hobbs did the right thing in not debating Carrie Lake. I, I think it would have gone nowhere. I think that was demonstrated in the Masters uh, debate with Mark Kelly, actually. Like Masters had a platform to blatantly lie in that debate, <laughs> which is what I think Carrie, Carrie Lake would have done in a debate. So I think Katie did the right thing in not debating Carrie Lake. And I know a lot of people kind of still were hung up on that, but I, I think that was still the right decision. Hi, May, what are your thoughts? I think Chad has a lot of great points, but I do fundamentally disagree with that decision. I, I think that that became the story. And Carrie Lake was very deep at doing this, is that when she was pushed on some hard issues, She'd always pivot to that, well, look, I'm here to talk. I'm willing to talk about these things, but my opponent won't talk about these things. So why aren't you asking her about it? So she was able to, in a lot of ways, jujitsu herself out of a lot of tight situations. And it gave her uh, an opportunity to constantly pound um, Katie Hobbs as being really scared. And I think Arizonans don't like that fundamentally. You know, I've seen some debates in Arizona history, as we all recall, John Brewer probably had the worst debate in the debate in the history of debates. And yeah. she still won and she still won handily. And one of the reasons was is that I think even if Katie Hobbs would have been in that back and forth session with Carrie Lake, she could have shown that she had the medal to be um, somebody that was gonna be tough. That was a missed opportunity for her because I think if she would have done it, it would have been done. It would have been a non-story. And then she could have focused on those areas that Chad talked about as being more uh, policy driven. But unfortunately, she could never cut through because it was constantly 24-7, oh, she doesn't want to debate Carrie Lake. So let's talk about the one person who wasn't running in Arizona, who you both have brought up, who was brought up by candidates on both sides, and that is former President Donald Trump. He obviously came out, he endorsed Mark Fincham, he endorsed Carrie Lake. They had a very different outcome, the two of them, and then you have a candidate like Juan Siscomani who stayed away from former President Trump more. How does all of that play out as we move forward you know, for the Republican Party in Arizona and maybe even nationally? And Jaime, I'll let you start on that as our Republican <laughs> representative here. Well, 
Again, candidates matter. And I think if Adrian Fontes, for instance, is able to hold on and beat Mark Fincham, just the opposite of Katie Hobbs, I was impressed with Adrian's campaign and that he was tough. He didn't back down. He was willing to engage. I think that would will benefit him if he's able to hold on. Um, Juan Cisco Mane, on the other hand, I think was very smart on the flip side as a Republican to, especially in that particular legislative district, I don't think the Trump uh, mystique is as powerful as it is in other congressional districts. So he was very smart to stay away from that and really focus on the economy and really focus on the things that helped Republicans this cycle. You know, Trump's going to be here for a while and have an impact on Republican politics. But I think folks are starting to recognize where and when uh, that becomes more of a factor. Certainly in the primaries, it's a ma major factor. I believe Carrie Lake would have had a better time had she, yeah, said, look, I'm, I'm part of Team Trump, but I'm going to stop talking about him and get away and start talking about the issues. I think that could have helped her mightily, especially at a time when um, Republicans were, had an opportunity to surge. I think that kept her down quite a bit. Chad, as our, our, our resident Democrat for this conversation, what are your thoughts about the influence of the former president here? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, if you look not just here in Arizona, but you look nationally, um, if you're looking at a lot of these competitive races uh, and, and you're looking, especially, you know, bringing up the secretary of state's race here in Arizona and, and uh, Adrian Fontes, for instance, Mark Fincham, uh, you look at those similar races across the country, those people who are trying to get in charge of our election systems that were part of that election denial crowd are all losing for the most part. Uh, and a lot of Trump's handpicked candidates, as we know, are losing uh, or they're in very, very, very tough races. Like, again, for instance, Carrie Lake here in Arizona. And, you know, this goes back to what I said a minute ago. Uh, that shouldn't have been the case for the Republican Party this year, given the national mood. And, and you mentioned him earlier. If I, if I mentioned Ron DeSantis, this is where I'm going with this. If I'm the Republican Party and I'm looking at what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, and I'm looking at what Donald Trump is doing to the party as a whole. And I'm not a Republican, so I'm, I'm playing one here, high just for entertainment's sake. <laughs> You're um, doing very well, Chad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you got to start washing your hands of Donald Trump at this point. Um, he, he's not helping that party out. And as a Democrat, you know, great for us, uh, but but not good for the country as, as an American. Uh, and and I, would, I would think that at some point, Ron DeSantis is going to try to take on Donald Trump here very soon. And, and wrestle control of that party away from him. Um, and, and this goes back to, again, what I said a minute ago, too, about 2024. You know, Carrie Lake's strategy and many of the campaign strategies was trying to solely focus on and motivate their base in this cycle. Uh, they were counting on, you know, a depressed Democratic turnout in a midterm election and just really rallying their base. And that may work, or and it probably won't work, at least in some of these races, and in 2024, that will definitely not work. Uh, in 2024, Democrats are going to show up in high numbers, like they always do in presidential years. Lower efficacy independents are going to turn out in higher numbers. And if the Republican Party is still running around, and if Carrie Lake, if, if she is elected, which I'm skeptical that she's going to win still at this point, quite frankly, but if she's governor and running around being a MAGA governor, 2024 is going to be a very tough year for Republicans uh, here in Arizona and any other competitive state in the country. All right, as we wrap this up, Jaime, let me just play off what Chad just said. What does 2024 look like, do you think, from a Republican standpoint? Well, in Arizona, 
I would agree that the messaging needs to be different because that eight point advantage I, I mentioned earlier, um, that goes away and that goes away pretty fast in the presidential election year. Uh, the turnout is much, much higher, particularly among Democrats, particularly among the independents. So that's where uh, the messaging and the policies that they're going to be pushing has to reflect things that the citizens of Arizona want to see happen. If they talk about the economy, if they talk about education reform, if they talk about securing the border, which I think people do want to see happen. But if they're reasonable policies that are really focused on those areas, um, they could benefit. But if they go off on these tangents and continue to talk about 2020, that election cycle and why we have to create all these things to deal with the 2020 phenomena, um, that will not play out well for Republicans. I, I would agree with that in 2024. So it'll be interesting to see. I do think uh, Lake should uh, come back and win this thing. And if they do, the kinds of people that she would surround herself with and the kinds of policies that she's going to push out of the gate, I think will be very telling. All right, gentlemen, well, thank you both for spending some time with us to break down what we know at this point. Thank you. Good to be on. Thank you. That was Jaime Maletta of Maletta Alvarez and Chad Campbell of Lumen Strategies, Arizona. Our interview was recorded Thursday afternoon. For the latest election results, go to the Your Vote 2022 page on azpm.org. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. We're looking at this week's election. One factor in Arizona from turning solidly red to purple in recent elections may be an increase in voters between the ages of 18 and 24. A study from Tufts University found that youth voters grew by 5% since the last midterm in Arizona, and the state's not alone. In fact, other battleground states saw more notable increases in youth voting. To learn more about that study, we spoke with Abby Kisa. She's the deputy director of the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts University, which published the study. Well, one of the things that is really key to young people being new to an election cycle is making sure that young people are registered to vote. And for some young people, this can be a pretty significant step if they don't have other people in their life who are talking about elections or who, who are active voters. And, and so we check on this. And we check on this for 18 to 24 year olds, but also 18 to 19 year olds who've just aged into the electorate. And when we were looking at that during the 2022 election cycle, we found that right before the election, there were about half of states who had over the number of young people registered in 2018 in the 2022 election, which was a pretty significant thing because the 2018 election was the high watermark for youth voter participation in the midterms since the voting age was lowered. And we actually found that there were 5% more young voters in Arizona in 2022 than there were in 2018. And since Arizona's youth voter turnout skyrocketed in the 2018 election, this was a pretty pretty huge opportunity for people to have young people participating in the election. I know it's early, but looking at previous elections, the difference between registration and actually filling out a ballot, because it's easy to register, especially on college campuses, did you see those numbers correlated or did a lot of people register and then just not vote? Well, this is a good question. And for young people, it can be a confusing process to understand now that you're registered, how do I cast a ballot? If I want to vote in person, where do I do that? And so we can't 
totally assume that that's an easy process for all young people. Um, and But what we usually see is that a significant portion of young people who are registered do actually turn out to vote. Now that's generally, that's not about the specific election cycle. Um, in this specific election cycle, we don't yet have that information about Arizona, but we do know that youth voter turnout in the 2022 election cycle, our early estimate is that it's the second highest midterm youth voter turnout in the past 30 years. Talking about some of the Arizona data, I saw that you had 5% up for 18 to 24 year olds, but 18 and 19 year olds, those first time voters, it was actually down for them. So people who were eligible two years ago, but chose not to get registered did this time. Any thoughts on why that is? We have a really tough time across the country making sure that young people, even before they're 18 years old, are thinking about elections and thinking about voting. And so you're right, when we looked at the data in October and throughout the summer, we saw that 18 and 19 year olds were really trailing 2018 when it comes to youth voter registration in the state of Arizona. Now, there's a bunch of reasons why this could have been the case. The 2018 election saw a considerable amount of organizing amongst young people around issues like gun violence, um, and it was a high watermark. Now, at the same time, there's so much that we can do to address this issue. We call this the process of really trying to grow voters. And that can include media. It can include news media talking about how you do things like that, asking parents and families to actually talk to young people and make sure they know this information. It can also include nonpartisan voter education in schools, combining the process of voter registration with learning about elections and voting. Many states, although not yet Arizona, have pre-registration where you can register to vote even before you're 18 years old. So there's a lot of people in our communities who can make sure that young person, no matter their race and ethnicity, no matter their family background, have the opportunity to understand that they can register to vote and participate in our democracy. As you said, Arizona saw about a 5% bump in that younger voter registration, which is great. But then there were states, I think, saw Michigan, 24% bump. What does that say about Michigan or what does that say about Arizona? There's a lot of factors that influence youth voter registration numbers by state. And they differ, as you point out, very dramatically by state. One of the things that Michigan has going for it is the fact that it has automatic voter registration. Um, and, and so that means that, you know, people um, who go through the DMV and through per very particular processes are automatically registered to vote and have to opt out instead of having to opt in. Um, and so that's something that states with higher registration numbers do allow. Arizona allows online voter registration, which is fantastic. Um, but some states do have policies that go beyond that. And what's really critically important in some of these states is making sure that these policies really reach young people. So they know that they can do things like use online voter registration. They know how that process works. They know where it is. Cause just cause it's on the internet doesn't mean that everyone knows that it's there. So we've seen these big increases. You mentioned in 2018 that gun violence was something that drove a lot of younger voters to register and get involved. 
Do we have any data on what is driving this big increase across the country, not just Arizona, this time around? You know, this is such an important way to connect to elections for a lot of young people, connecting through issues that directly affect their lives or people who they care about. And largely, that's what we've seen in our research, that young people are motivated to vote because of issues that affect their lives, not necessarily always because of a partisan affiliation. We're seeing many young people choose to not be affiliated with a particular political party. Some are, of course. And so what issues are being talked about or organized or what young people are organizing around in communities really matters to an election cycle. And we've consistently seen young people organizing, you know, obviously in the 2018 election and the 2020 election was huge. And we've seen young people organizing around reproductive rights this year. We've seen young people organizing around climate justice. We've seen young people, you know, really be talking about things, continuing to talk about things like gun violence prevention. Um, and so the ways in which young people talk about those issues, but also get their peers involved in talking about them as well and connecting that to registering to vote is what's really critical here because just having a policy pass in Washington DC doesn't automatically magically mean that young people know knew, know it happened, right? So the communication that elected officials and candidates were doing to talk about the, those issues and to connect it to elections was also really critically important. You mentioned that a lot of young people are registering without a party affiliation. Do we have any data on the breakdown of how registration went this time? We do know that amongst young people who are registering for the first time this year, that there was a gap between the young people who are registering Democratic for the first time and Republican for the first time. So there's more young people who are registering Democratic than there are young people who are registering Republican across the country um, amongst those new registrants but there's still a considerable number who are choosing not to register with a political party. All right, well, thanks for talking with us for a few minutes. Thank you. That was Abby Kisa of the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts University. And that's The Buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we look at a Tucson infrastructure project that's been in the works for more than 30 years. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with help from Samantha Larned. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.